Greetings, travelers, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Mike Wong here, and today I'm going to bring you interviews from my trip to the Cloud Academy, held at the Lazouche Advanced School for Physics in the French Alps. Part of what being a scientist means is going to meetings to share your research and learn about the latest work of your colleagues and forge partnerships and collaborations. Some conferences have thousands or even tens of thousands of people spanning all areas of a large branch of science like physics or chemistry or the geosciences. Other meetings can have just a few dozen people focusing on a very, very specific problem, like clouds. The Cloud Academy's goal was to connect a variety of scientists of different backgrounds and ages over the conundrum of clouds. How do they form? What are they made of? How do they impact a planet's appearance and climate? Why do they present challenges for observing planets? How can we circumvent those challenges? And what can we learn from the clouds themselves? In our investigations, lectures, and discussions, we encountered many surprising facets of clouds and found subtle connections between clouds and Star Trek. Let's start with an interview that I did with University of Arizona graduate student Maria Steinruck, who was last on this podcast a year ago in episode 18, and NASA scientist Dr. Tony Del Genio. Okay, it's recording. Hi, Tony. How are you doing, Michael? Doing well. And Maria? Hi. Hi. Okay. So it looks like everything's working, so I guess we should just jump right in. Um, we're at the Cloud Academy here in Les Uches, France. And I think the first thing that we should do is introduce our guests to the listeners, but then also just describe the place that we're in because it's such a magical place. So first of all, we have Tony Del Genio. Is that how you pronounce your name? That's right. Okay. And from uh, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, right? Yes. I work at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, or GIS, in New York City, and uh, I'm a scientist who's done various things in uh, my life over the years. I've studied uh, Venus and Saturn on NASA spacecraft missions. I've done a lot of study of the Earth's climate. And in the last few years, I started to study exoplanets and uh, the question of how we might find and identify and understand habitable exoplanets. Excellent. And Maria Steinbrook, is that, did I pronounce that right? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. See, I, I keep getting better maybe every time you <laughs> come back on the, on the podcast. Um, you should interview people with simpler names than the two of us. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so Maria, um, go ahead and remind the listeners who you are. Hi. Yeah. I'm a graduate student at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and I study exoplanets, but actually the ones that we think are definitely not habitable. <laughs> so I, I focus on uh, gas giants, kind of like Jupiter or also Neptune or Uranus. But if you move them much closer to the host stars, they're really, really, really hot. And they always face the same side to the star because... Um, uh, they're so close to the star that they just got really strong tidal forces that damp the rotation until they just 
like one side faces the star all the time. So yeah, you get these really strong day-night contrasts and you get really weird atmospheric circulations and that's really fun, but we also don't think there's life there. <laughs> <laughs> but the difference between Maria's uh, research and mine is that Maria studies planets that you can actually observe and learn some things about so that you have some idea whether your ideas might be correct or not, whereas the small planets that I uh, think about that might be habitable, we have very, so little information about that I can just uh, make anything up I want and I can't tell yet whether I'm right or wrong. It's all science fiction for now, but uh, soon, hopefully with the next generation of telescopes that are coming online, we'll be able to learn more about Maria's planets and then also the first characterizations of the smaller terrestrial planets that Tony has been modeling. So before we jump too deep into the science, let's just describe where we are right now. We're in the French Alps and uh, staring at this huge, beautiful mountain range. The peaks are just so sharp and pointy and jagged. It's really unlike anything that I've seen in California. How would you guys describe the location? It's very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's beautiful and it's somewhat remote. We're far from any city and we get to spend an entire week together with each other with people who are thinking about some of the same things that we are. We're in this beautiful location that kind of inspires you to, to think big and to, and to dream about what's occurring and to put the, the other cares of your life uh, aside as much as possible. And uh, it's a great environment in which to actually have the time to think about science and learn about science, since there are so many people here at the same time all doing the same thing. I totally agree. It's, um, it's, it's amazing to be inspired by the views and sometimes the clouds will roll in and, and block some of the mountains, but that's okay because we're here to learn about clouds and, and be in awe of the, both the challenges of trying to understand the physics of, of clouds, their formation to the way that they impact planetary climate, and, and then just also appreciate their beauty and their importance for both Earth and other planets. So Tony, you gave a talk yesterday about, was it yesterday or was it Tuesday? Two days ago. It was two days ago. Wow, time, time flies. Time flies when you're having fun thinking about clouds. <laughs> um, and uh, it was about the clouds of Earth and Venus. And I noticed that in your talk, you slipped in some Star Trek references. So I was like, well, if, you, if you're going to do that, then you're definitely going to be on my podcast. Um, so let's see, the, the references were... Um, you had an image from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, of Captain Kirk and Leonard McCoy uh, in the Klingon Tribunal. They were holding their translators, translators. up to their ears because uh, you were trying to emphasize communication, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I, I chose that because the field of exoplanet research is trying to do something that hasn't been done too often in science. We have scientists that uh, come together from different fields. And exoplanet research has traditionally been the province of astronomers and astrophysicists. And, and for this particular type of research involving planets, you ha uh, it helps to talk to people who spend a lot of time thinking about planets. And so we have solar system scientists here too. And for people who think about the Earth as a planet, as a planet with clouds, as a planet that's habitable, then it's useful for Earth scientists to come into the mix also. And the interesting thing is that those those three fields of scientists, we usually uh, read different journals, we usually go to different meetings and interact with different people, and as a result, we're sort of isolated civilizations that have developed different languages over time, and so we may be talking about the same thing, but we use different terminology. And so one of the challenges when you come to a meeting that we're all together 
is to try to understand the different ways in which we all describe the same thing. And so I, I showed a, uh, a slide uh, uh, with the translator just to, to remind ourselves that we do need to find ways to communicate with people who speak differently from the way we do in scientific language. And the second Star Trek reference was to the classic um, original series episode uh, where they encounter the silicate-based life form, the Horda. And so you were trying to define planetary habitability in terms of surface liquid water for life forms like us who use liquid water in our biochemistries and are carbon-based. And so you said, we are not considering any Hordas in, mm -hmm. our, in our habitability criterion. And uh, I thought that was that was a nice nod too, because there are, there might be other forms of life out there. There might very well be other forms of life out there. The search for life elsewhere in the universe is still relatively new. There's a lot we don't understand about how life emerged on our own planet. We just know that you need certain ingredients to make the type of life that we're used to here on Earth, and water liquid water happens to be one of the important ingredients that you need for the necessary chemistry and so when we go looking for or think about going to look for signs of life on other planets we recognize that there could be life forms based on silicon, based on uh, methane, based on all kinds of different things that we can't really even imagine yet although there are people out there who are doing research trying to think about different bases for life, but for the life that we actually might try to go look for uh, using future telescopes and things like that, we say, well, let's stick to the thing that we actually have some understanding of and let's look for life as we know it is, that's the usual term, and life as we know it is liquid water based. Mm -hmm. So your talk was about clouds on Earth and on Venus and how they impact habitability. So what are the major differences between clouds on Earth and clouds on Venus and how do they differently or similarly impact the climates of these two planets? So on Earth we have clouds that are mostly made out of liquid water or ice, but water in one form or another. And clouds on Earth play a couple of different roles. They keep our climate cooler than it would be otherwise because clouds are bright and they reflect sunlight. That means our planet doesn't get quite as warm. They also can trap heat, but they block more sunlight than they trap heat. So on balance, they keep our climate cooler than it would be otherwise. And naturally, clouds deliver water to the Earth's surface. Clouds form from water that evaporates from the oceans and then condenses as it goes up into the atmosphere. And uh, if it were not for those clouds, and, and especially the clouds that deliver rain to the Earth's surface over land, we couldn't sustain life on land on Earth. So clouds are pretty important. Important, uh, pretty central to our climate and to, and to life on Earth. Venus is a planet that hardly has any water at all. It has tiny bits of, of what you might call humidity in the atmosphere, but much, much less than the Earth does. It's possible that billions of years ago, Venus might have begun its life with an ocean like the Earth had. We don't know whether it did or whether it didn't. It's possible. But whatever it began as, it certainly doesn't have any water left now. If it began with an ocean, most of that water has escaped to space now. And Venus is a bone-dry planet that instead has this thick carbon dioxide atmosphere and has temperatures at the surface that would melt lead. And so Venus doesn't have the types of clouds that we have on Earth. Instead, Venus has clouds that are made out of a, a solution of sulfuric acid in water. So pretty corrosive, uh, nasty things that you wouldn't want to be uh, hanging around in. And in fact, they're pretty similar to the 
Sulfuric acid hazes that form when volcanic eruptions occur on Earth and dump sulfur dioxide into, into the stratosphere. The difference between Earth and Venus is that when that happens on Earth every once in a while, eventually those things fall out of the atmosphere, get washed out of the atmosphere. On Venus, they never get washed out of the atmosphere, and so you build up this big thick sulfuric haze that makes Venus actually very bright and from space, from the outside, it looks as if it should be colder than the Earth, but if you actually go down to the surface because of all this carbon dioxide, it's actually hellishly hot. That's very cool and very exotic. But I have the feeling that the clouds on the planets that Maria studies are even more exotic. So uh, Maria, for hot Jupiters and hot Neptunes, these very large gaseous bodies around other stars, very close to those stars, what are clouds like there and how are they important in your research? Well, the problem is like we don't actually really know what those clouds are made of. We just know from the spectra that there have to be some sort of clouds. And there are actually, it's not as easy as on Earth. Or I'd say it's even not as easy as on Venus, because there are so many different uh, materials that it could be made of. And because those planets are so hot, those clouds are also things that we think of as rocks on Earth. For example, one potential uh, composition would be olivine, which uh, is a silicate. It's like this green uh, gemstone, and that, that could actually be a composition of clouds. Though, of course, you, you would not imagine it would be very tiny particles. It would not be actually rocks that are big enough that we, we could actually uh, see them with our eyes. There could be a lot of other uh, kind of rock-type materials. And then another composition that's entirely different is photochemical uh, hazes. Those are even messier because we don't really know what they are made of. They're made of out of some hydrocarbon compounds, and they seem to be important at least on a cooler, I say oh, the cooler hot planets, which is a really <laughs> weird term. But when we say uh, hot Jupiters and hot Neptunes, those temperatures can vary between like 500 Kelvin, which is like I have no clue what that is in Fahrenheit, but like at least several. I don't know either. <laughs> yeah, but that that would be about the surface temperatures of Venus to like several thousand kelvins, which is a temperature where even iron would melt or evaporate. And uh, we we could also have actually like iron compositions for clouds. And then there there's also on some of the hot or warm Neptunes. So those are the ones that are somewhat hotter than Venus's surface temperature. Mm -hmm. You would have um, potassium chloride, for example, which is the thing that you ha have in sodium-reduced uh, salt. So there could be clouds forming out of that. Uh, so the problem is when you try to model those clouds, we have to consider all of these compositions. And we don't know a priori whether it's also going to be just one of those compositions or whether it's just going to be a messy mix of those compositions. So it's really challenging to even guess what those clouds might be at. Well, that's the challenge for, uh, for young scientists like yourself to yeah. go and figure out. It's actually really exciting here to see so many young scientists who are working on this problem. Like, I feel like the people who are here are on average like much younger than at other conferences that I go to. There, there's some all the very senior and established scientists, too, who have been in a field for, for decades and have 
well, solar system plants, and then slowly started to also work on exoplanets, for example, Mark Marley. So, so Mark Marley tweeted the other day about that very uh, aspect of this meeting and all the young people uh, here along with the few of us older people. And he said he, uh, he feels like someone who stumbled into a hotel of people on spring break. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really great. Yeah, you should follow Mark Marley on Twitter, at Astro Mark Marley. And you're on Twitter as well, right? Yeah. So what's your handle? It's just at Maria Steinrug. Okay. So it's maybe can we post it in the comments or yeah, something? Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put it in yeah. the in the show notes. And then um, Tony, I'm not on Twitter myself, but I am uh, one of the the leaders of a NASA project called Nexus N E X S S, and Nexus does uh, have a Twitter account at N E X S S I N F O, and I am one of the people who contributes to that. But on, but only serious stuff, not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have about five minutes left in this coffee break before we have to go back and learn more awesome things about clouds. So I wanted to turn back to Star Trek. Maria, last time we spoke, we were in the middle of season one of Star Trek Discovery, the latest Star Trek series. Have you finished season one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. And Tony, oh have you watched oh, any of this? I don't. I know. I don't. I haven't kept up with it. <sighs> okay, so Maria, how would you describe Star Trek Discovery uh, to Tony? Uh, Tony, actually, which Star Trek series have you have you seen? Actually, I, I I'm mostly familiar with the old Star Trek, and and if I have to do true confessions, I'm I'm a big Doctor Who fan instead. Ooh, no, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> Whovians are awesome. Uh, so um, Maria, uh, yeah. So how would you describe yeah. Star Trek Discovery to Tony? Oh my God, it's so much going on. It's, <laughs> it's kind of there's so many plot twists. Mm-hmm. And then every episode, there's another plot twist, and then you find out one character you thought was like, it's like very different because suddenly, like, not everyone on Star Trek is like a good person anymore. Mm-hmm. Instead, there there are some people who are you think they're a good person, and suddenly you realize you're, they're bad. And then, oh. but then who's, who's not good anymore? Back. You're going to destroy some some of them, some of the tenets of my youth. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's all the new characters. So there's like the captain who you never know what his plans are. And it's kind of of the Uh fun of it, but it's also very different from old Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And then I think both of us already thought back at DPS last year that there was a lot of stuff going on and it, it was so much, but... It had not even started then. Yeah, it, yeah, mm-hmm. we were on episode five at DPS. Yeah, we hijacked one of the conference rooms and like projected Star mm-hmm. Trek Discovery on the on the giant screen there. Um, yeah. Can so- I tell you one thing? One thing notable about Star Trek that 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 impressed me from again from long ago, mm-hmm. uh, and and that is that so so in exoplanet research, most not all but most of the planets that we know about are what we call tidally locked. They're very close to the to the stars that they orbit. And as a result, a lot of them probably keep the same face toward the star at all times so that there's one side of the planet that's all day and another side of the planet that's all night. That's sort of like the way the moon is in its orbit around the Earth. And Star Trek was the first place I ever saw a tidally locked planet talked about. They had a whole episode where they were transporting the uh, a princess back to a planet where there were two warring civilizations, one on the day side and one on the night side. And she was the product of a uh, marital union between uh, someone from the day side and the night side. She was being brought back to the planet to broker a peace on this tidally locked planet. So I was very impressed that Star Trek was the first place I ever, I ever uh, found out about tidally locked planets. 
That's 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 great. Um, my last question to both of you is because we're at the Cloud Academy and we're talking about Star Trek. Is if you were to write your very own Star Trek episode and clouds of one form or another were to come in a big role in that episode, what would they do? What what would they play? And uh, how would the crew go about exploring these clouds or have some mishaps with clouds? So, well, actually, if we go back to this episode I was just referring to about the tidally locked planet. So when they finally get to the tidally locked planet and they start showing you know, pictures of it, you can see from the spaceship, the day side of the planet is shrouded in clouds. So you actually can't see down to the surface. And so you don't know anything about it. And uh, what struck me about that is that that's actually the problem that we have with a lot of the real exoplanets that people are trying trying to study that that, that we can't see down to the surface. And uh, one of the things that we can do about clouds on Earth is that we can put instruments in space, uh, radar called radars and lidars that can actually see through clouds down to the surface and uh, exoplanets are much too far away for us to do that but uh, I'd love for us to be able to get close enough to an exoplanet to actually look through the clouds with a radar and really see what's down there. Yeah I agree with that like I would like to have like a really exploration focused episode where we actually go there and measure it and maybe we could also send down like a probe that actually picks up samples. And the, and the problem with us as human beings is that we're we're very limited in our imaginations. And so, you know, early in history, the only planet we really knew anything about was Earth. And maybe we thought we knew everything about everything. And then we started to, to explore the other planets in our solar system. And then all of a sudden we had nine or eight, depending on whether you want to count Pluto or not. And you think the that the planets in our solar system kind of show us all the different kinds of planets there could be. And now all of a sudden we know about thousands of planets and we find out that there are all these really exotic planets that are made of things that we couldn't even imagine and we just wonder how much is out there that we that we just don't have a clue about yet and we're really still as human beings limited by our imaginations and nature always surprises us and so that's why it would be great to be able to look through the clouds and hazes on some of these planets and really see what they're like on the surface. So it sounds like you two don't want to write a Star Trek episode. You want to be in a Star Trek episode. Oh, absolutely. Go, yes. go there, sample those clouds, yes. peer through them, look at the surfaces of these planets. And, absolutely. Beam right. me down. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect ending. Um, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Maria, for being on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Uh, hopefully we can have you back uh, on board sometime uh, in the near future to talk about more excellent science about these uh, strange new worlds that are out there. It was awesome catching up with Maria, who is an excitable young scientist and Star Trek fan whom I and many others expect big things from in the future. And I totally loved the way she described Star Trek Discovery. What a roller coaster ride it is. Tony's lectures and stories were just a pleasure to listen to. I find it no surprise that, while working at NASA, Tony's also been an adjunct professor at Columbia University and Barnard College. He has a really fun and approachable personality, and explains difficult concepts with ease. Tony's totally right about science communication, too. Often, scientists can't even understand each other because we've invented all sorts of shortcuts to express complicated ideas, resulting in jargon, words that can really only be understood in a very specific context. 
I can't wait for the day someone invents a universal translator for scientific jargon. And if you find that this podcast is a bit too heavy on jargon, don't be afraid to leave me a comment or tweet at me at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I, because I'm always looking for ways to improve this show for you. Towards the end of the Cloud Academy, Tony came ambling up to me and Maria with this grin on his face. Maria and I were deep in a discussion about some aspect of cloud physics, and Tony, of course, helped us out with both his wit and insight. And then he said, but I have an even more important piece of information, and opened up his laptop to the memory alpha page for the Next Generation episode, The Dauphin. That's the episode I was talking about, he said. The one with the tidally locked planet. I had a chance to rewatch this episode recently, and indeed, there is an amazing reference to tidal locking. What puzzles me, Captain? is how she is expected to bring peace to Dalit Four. Its inhabitants have been fighting throughout their recorded history. What do we know about the cause of these wars? Only that it is the difference between night and day. Data, you used a colloquialism. Did I? What I meant, sir, is that Dalit Four rotates only once per revolution. Therefore, one side is constantly dark and the other side constantly light. One might surmise that the two hemispheres have developed disparate cultures, which is a major cause of most wars. This child is supposed to bring them together. She seems too delicate for such a task. Do not be fooled by her looks. The body is just a shell. After the final talk of the conference, somebody else came up to me and said, Are you the guy who does the science and Star Trek podcast? Um, yeah, I said. And he said, I would love to be on your podcast one day. And I just went, uh, okay. How about right now? Hello, hello, how's it going? I would say everything is going quite well. Excellent. So I'm sitting here across from at Martian Colonist. And what's your real name, Martian Colonist? Uh, my... <laughs> My real name is Ryan MacDonald. Ryan MacDonald. And where are you from? I am based at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Excellent. I hear that's a, that's a decent place for science and math. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty gone. Great history, going back to Isaac Newton. Many impressive scientists have gone there over the time. So it's, it's very humbling having that connection with history. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that history will continue to be very kind to Cambridge. Um, do you remember the Star Trek Next Generation episode, All Good Things? Have you watched that one? It's the uh, very last episode of Next Generation. And they go into the future, or a scene from the future is, is shown. Uh, it's actually an alternate timeline. But uh, Data is the... Um, I can't remember the name of the chair, but it's Isaac Newton's chair that mm. Stephen Hawking recently oh, had Lucasian, Lucasian yeah um, that chair and so data occupies that mm. at Cambridge uh, in That's that cool. timeline so yeah tell me about your history with with Star Trek one of the things that I absolutely love about Star Trek that you don't see reflected in many other science fiction shows is that it has such an upbeat and positive vision for the future where most of humanity's problems that we face today are just trivial things that we solved in the past and we're out there working together with other species to explore the universe and just to see what's out there. 
I think this is best reflected, this mentality in, in Voyager, when, sure, they, they're trying to get home, but they, they're diverting every single direction just to explore and discover new things. It's not just about being in the future. It's about the best of human nature. And that's why I love Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. A different captain would have probably gotten Voyager home a little <laughs> quicker, but uh, Janeway is a scientist at heart, so mm. she had to just stop at every nebula and search for coffee, among yep. other things. <laughs> um, yeah, so is that your favorite TV show or favorite uh, Star Trek series? Oh, well, you, you might kill me for this, but uh, I do have a small place in my heart uh, for Enterprise as well. Of course, but, yeah. I mean, it, I, mean, I mean, the title song and credits going along that are so inspirational because they they link directly with where we are now and you can see a direct path between how we get from space shuttles and tiny little pods all the way up to the first starships exploring the universe and so that series spoke to me a lot because they weren't perfect they didn't know what they were doing there was no prime directive and they were just making it up as they went along so that felt a lot more it felt a lot closer to where we are now and so, yeah, I quite liked Enterprise. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I feel the same way about Enterprise. It also happened at a time in my life where, well, I guess we're about the same age, probably. Yeah. So you're a grad student in Cambridge? Uh, I am, yes. Okay. Yeah. And so we were probably both in our early teenage years when Enterprise oh, yeah. came out. And um, so that was that was quite fun because we were uh, at the age where we could probably appreciate Star Trek for many of its... Uh, multitude of facets mm. and i'm sure that played a big role in inspiring you to pursue a career in the physical sciences absolutely i mean the fact that in in star trek at least at the time when it was originally written we didn't know anything about these strange new worlds around other stars it was pure speculation really and now the fact that we're actually finding out for real planets orbiting other stars they're even more bizarre and strange than star trek predicted Although at the moment we can't go and explore these planets ourselves, by using telescopes, we are able to explore them. So it it feels almost like I am living in the Star Trek uh, universe at the moment. And yeah. how, <laughs> how do you, in your research, actually hmm. explore these very distant, strange new worlds? So I use a technique called transmission spectroscopy, which is um, it's a, a fancy way of just saying that we stare at a star when a planet is just about to pass in front of it. And when this happens, a very tiny amount of the light from the star filters through the atmosphere of the planet. And as the light travels through the atmosphere, certain molecules and atoms will absorb certain colours of the light. And so that means that the planet itself appears to change in size when we look at different colours. If the atmosphere absorbs strongly, the planet is slightly larger, if the atmosphere doesn't absorb at all, it's slightly smaller. So by seeing how large a planet is as a function of the colour of light, we can actually chemically diagnose what these atmospheres are made of, which is ultimately the way that one day in the future we hope we might find indirect signs of life on some of these distant worlds. And we're here at the Cloud Academy. So how do clouds influence the transit spectroscopy that you're doing? So clouds historically have been a bit of a nuisance for us, because if you have clouds really high up in the atmosphere, the clouds just block out every single colour of light equally. And so it's almost like, imagine an iceberg, for instance, you can only just see a tiny amount above the surface, and all the rest of it is hidden from view. So the clouds could potentially hide what the atmosphere is made of from us. 
And so if we're looking at a habitable planet one day and we want to detect things like oxygen and ozone byproducts of life, clouds could get in the way. And so clouds are very much at the forefront of our considerations. So what have you discovered so far about planets through transit spectroscopy? So I have been trying to find a way to peer beneath the clouds and get around this problem, which relies on a, a clever idea that... So because these planets are tidally locked, meaning one side always faces their parent star, just like one side of the moon always faces the Earth, that means you get a permanent day side and a permanent night side. And these huge temperature differences cause incredibly strong winds to blow around the planet, meaning that when we look at these planets, the hotter parts of the planet are less likely to have clouds than the cooler parts. So we expect that instead of the planets being entirely shrouded in cloud, there may be gaps in the cloud. And so I've been developing a technique to do transmission spectroscopy with patchy clouds, such that in the part of the atmosphere where there's a gap in the clouds, we can peer through it and see what the chemistry is doing. But then on the cloudy part, we can look at how high the cloud is, maybe what it's made of. So we can simultaneously work out what the chemistry is and what the clouds are doing, which is absolutely vital if we want to really understand habitable planets in particular in detail one day. That's really cool. So tell me a little bit about the types of planets that you're currently looking at, because you keep saying one day we'll get to the habitable <laughs> one planets. One day, yes. <laughs> but right now I assume you're looking at some other type of planets. So what are those planets like? Yes, at the moment, all of the planets that we are using these techniques on are very large gas giants. We call them hot Jupiters because they're pretty much like Jupiter, but a lot hotter. We're talking many thousands of degrees Celsius. So the reason we're looking at these planets is because their atmospheres are so large and they, they puff out, they expand because of the higher temperatures, that a large amount of the light from the star goes through the atmosphere, and so it's quite easy to observe the signal from the atmospheres. And so that means we're able to use telescopes that weren't actually designed to do this, mainly the Hubble Space Telescope and also the Spitzer Space Telescope, launched before we even knew these planets existed. But the problem is, if you want to look at the atmospheres of planets like the Earth, the atmospheres are a lot smaller because the planets are colder, and also the gases that make up the atmosphere are a lot heavier than hydrogen and helium that make up the gas giants, as that pulls the atmosphere down and makes it very compact. So we don't currently have telescopes that are quite good enough to peer into the atmospheres of these habitable worlds. But we're not far off, and with NASA's next-generation telescope, James Webb, we absolutely will be able to start looking into these habitable planets for the first time. Yeah, hopefully James Webb goes up. Um, we're crossing our fingers. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the mission keeps getting delayed, and I think the latest is 2021. 2021 is the latest. Ooh, yeah. So I, I remember when uh, James Webb was supposed to launch this year, 2018. Oh, yeah. I remember when I started my PhD. By the end of it, James Webb was going to be up there. And yeah, back, back, back. But, but for theorists like me, this is actually a a good thing because it gives us more time to develop the models we'll need to explain the observations. So in hindsight, I think this could be for the best. All right. Yeah. Speaking like a true theorist there. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the most profound thing that you think you learned at the Cloud Academy? Oh, the most profound. So we have heard a lot of fascinating talks about the clouds within our own solar system which, as a theorist working on exoplanets, I imagine we must know in excruciating detail every single little micro facet about them. 
which for some planets like Venus, where the clouds have been studied in polarisation, we do know to incredible detail what they're made of, how large they are. But I was really surprised that for the gas giants in our own solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, we know so little about the clouds. We don't even know precisely like how high they are or what they're actually made of due to things like photochemical muck, I think was the term, just coating yeah. these clouds. So I was very surprised that even in our own solar system, we just don't know what's going on in the clouds on some of these planets. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that makes the job even harder, I guess, to mm-hmm. diagnose the characteristics of planets that are very, very, very far away from us. Mm. But we're trying our best and we're trying to learn more about our own gas giant planets so that we can take some of that knowledge and bring them to the hot Mm. Jupiters. Uh, Although it's a completely different temperature regime, isn't Mm. it? So maybe there aren't any super direct correlations, just just loose analogies between the two. Because as you said, the photochemical haze plays a really big role in changing the composition of the particles in, say, Jupiter's atmosphere. But at you know thousands of kelvin that uh these these hot jupiters are at maybe photochemistry doesn't play Mm. such a large role because when the temperatures are so high you drive the chemicals into thermodynamic equilibrium and uh, and Mm. photochemistry might not be super important so i'm i'm mainly a solar system scientist so when i when i when i think about exoplanets they're they're very mysterious (laughs) to me and i i learned a lot about the capabilities of exoplanet observational techniques at this conference and from people like you and also from the the other observers and theorists who are working on these very distant strange new worlds it's incredible because the stage we're at in exoplanet research at the moment is about where we were in the 1920s and 30s for studying the solar system giants where we were just getting our first detections of ammonia for instance in jupiter's atmosphere so it's very nice to feel that we're we're fresh and we're right there at the beginning where we're just figuring out the very basic facts about these planets. Yeah. Have you seen Star Trek Discovery? I have seen Star Trek Discovery, yes. Okay, all the way through the first season? All the way through the first okay. season, yes. Uh, what are your thoughts on that so far? I think the Klingons speak a little bit slow. <laughs> were you getting a little bit like antsy waiting for the Klingon scenes to end because they were just going on forever? I mean, there were interesting aspects. Like, I really liked the, um, obviously they, they changed the appearance of the Klingons quite a lot, but I liked how personalized many of the Klingons were, particularly with the, the new makeup design that they had. So I really liked the attention to detail in the series, and obviously the graphics and CGI was fantastic. But there were many aspects of Discovery that didn't feel like Star Trek. Obviously, it had a much more like gritty, dark theme to it, which was a very interesting aspect to explore. But um, it's quite funny because at the same time that Discovery was airing, there was also um, The Orville came out. Have you mm. seen that? I haven't seen The Orville yet. Because that feels much more like Star Trek, even though it's a parody of Star Trek, um, interestingly enough. So uh, I'm excited to see where Discovery goes in future um, seasons. And obviously we've got um, the future Picard uh, season that will come out at some point as well, which I'm really excited for. So but any new Star Trek, I'm always excited for to see the directions that they take it. All right. So let's say that you just got hired as the science consultant for the Star Trek Discovery writers, and they want a season two story to revolve around a hot Jupiter. 
What would you say the plot should be involving this hot Jupiter? Do you envision life forms there? Do you envision treacherous clouds that they will encounter? Maybe a cloud life form? (laughs) (laughs) What would you want them to go and do at this hot Jupiter? What would you want them to discover? So I imagine that they receive a very weak distress signal, which is coming from a nearby system, not known to have any chartered habitable planets. And they go there and find just a single scorchingly hot blasted planet that's having its atmosphere stripped away and gradually on approach to fall into a star. And there's a very weak distress signal coming from this planet. And as they approach the atmosphere, they discover signs of a wrecked alien ship that is millennia old embedded inside some of the clouds, just using like the residual amount of its fuel just to stay, um, to stop itself from falling deep into the atmosphere. And so they clearly know because it, it's been there for millennia that there probably won't be anyone alive on there. But they go on board to investigate because this is a completely different design that doesn't match any known species that has ever been discovered before. Clearly the ship is powered if it has a distress signal. So can they extract any data archives or anything to discover what this species was and what might have ultimately happened to them? And I think that would be a nice way to set it up. And then obviously there'd be all the challenges of they can't send Discovery themselves into the giant due to the incredibly fast winds at many kilometres per second. There would be diamonds flying about and rain made of glass. It would be an incredibly treacherous endeavour just to get a shuttle onto this ship. And all the while they'd be facing incredible challenges, mainly posed just by the exotic weather conditions on this planet. And they probably couldn't beam over either because of the magnetic fields Absolutely. That, uh, hot Jupiter has. So yeah, that would be an adventure. An incredibly risky adventure where they're purely doing it just to try and find out who were these people, how did they get here, and are they still there now? Wow. That's a great story for a Hot Jupiter. Discovery writers, if you're listening to this <laughs> episode of Strange New Worlds, um, we'd love to see that. We'd really get a kick out of it. Well, thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds, Ryan. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure speaking to you and getting to know you at this conference. Besides being Martian Colonist on Twitter, Ryan's also got a YouTube channel called Martian Colonist, which you should definitely check out if you're at all interested in the Red Planet or human space exploration. That concludes episode 52 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you learned something new about clouds on other planets, why they're important, and why they can be difficult to deal with. It's amazing to me that on other planets, like many of those that we think have a permanent day side and a permanent night side, clouds could be made of salts, rocks, and iron. And although we're not quite at the technological capability yet, to characterize and search for biosigns on small terrestrial planets like the Earth, one day we will have that capability. And that brings us to the motto of the new research group that I've joined at the University of Washington. Photons are coming. That means that in the next few years we will have data on some of these strange new worlds that could potentially have life. In the next episode of Strange New Worlds, I will have finally made it to Seattle, Washington. I look forward to talking to you then, and I'll see you out there.